podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience via Spotify Live. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Huge shout out, as always, to the Patreon people. But just before we get to them, I have started my new network, 99.94. It is going to be a place that if you like the kind of stuff I do, hopefully there'll be a lot more stuff by a lot more people. And we're really trying to build a huge cricket network. So if you go over to 9994 dm.com you can sign up to our beta launch and you can see what we're doing there'll be some updates very shortly over there remember if you support us on patreon you get to ask questions first on this here live uh just like christopher hart has who says should the ipl look to play games in foreign countries like what the nfl have done we're playing games in europe i think they could play in china japan the usa look i i think honestly it sometimes we forget just how new the IPL is and, and uh, you know, how much it has yet to do, you know, very basic things, um, like have more than a two-month season, um, all those sorts of things. I think what you're talking about is something that it will definitely look at in the future. At the moment, it probably hasn't maximised its Indian audience yet, if we're being completely honest. Certainly not maximised it from a money perspective, although this new rights deal might change that. That is the sort of thing that you want to do as you're going ahead uh, when you're looking to expand into different markets. Um I wouldn't think they'd need to do that in the next couple of years. But yes, going ahead, you know, playing a game in New York and, you know, um, Beijing and uh, Tokyo. I'm available for the Tokyo game if anyone uh, needs a reporter for that one. Uh, I think makes a lot of sense. And it is something that I think they will do. I, I don't know how much they would have thought about it. But, you know, if they've got, a, you know, a future plan, um, I'd be shocked if there isn't something about it on there. Uh, AB says, we could keep us tend to be average or below height compared to your average cricketer. I'm sure this has benefits in terms of being more nimble, uh, easier loads of the ground, but it strikes me that it's the opposite of goalkeepers in football. So I've done a video about this, uh, AB. It's a, it's a long, it was a long time ago because someone else asked me about this. Um, and I did a video on YouTube about it. The basic reason is, is that cricket pitches originally, um, kept quite low. You know, the original bowlers obviously rolled the ball along the ground, but we didn't have pitches where there was good carry. We didn't have pitches where there was consistent carry, uh, pitches fell apart, all those sorts of things. It was actually very hard in the old days to have a very tall wicketkeeper. I think these days with pitches being a lot better and carrying a lot better, I think it makes sense. And I think you're probably seeing more and more tall wicketkeepers in the West, probably less so in Asia, where you still want to be crouched down completely for the spinners a lot more. But I certainly think we're getting taller wicketkeepers in the West. I think the... I, I talk about in that video, the perfect wicketkeeper really is someone with probably short legs and a huge wingspan because you do want them to be able to stay low, but you also want them to ca uh, to cover a lot of ground. So someone who's like, I don't know, uh, five foot seven, uh, but happens to have a seven foot two wingspan. Of course, that person would look quite odd, uh, but they'd be great for wicketkeeping. So I think that's the big difference. Whereas in goalkeeping, uh, keeping low is just one of the things you want to take up as much space as possible. Um, and I think that cricket's a little bit different. I think it's the same reason why for generations we had shorter batters. Uh, I, I know Mark Nicholas has a theory that the shorter batters is also uh, to do with um, 
people who are sure to have better hand-eye coordination, all that sort of thing, which, I, I, I mean, he may be right, there's less moving parts, all, the, all those sorts of things. But I do think a lot of these things just come back from the fact that the ball used to run along the ground, it used to keep low a lot more, and so it made sense for shorter people to do those jobs. Will says, should Alistair Cook open for England this summer? Well, uh, I'm pretty sure, I'm, I'm trying to think if I ever wrote it, but I probably said it, I wasn't sure he should have ever retired. I mean, they went from looking for one opener to two openers. He also retired right when opening the batting got really tough for everyone in the world and they had to throw in a bunch of people who weren't ready. Um, he had a poor year last year, didn't he? I think it was last year the first year he'd struggled in counter cricket since going back, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I do remember it being quite poor. I'd have to go back through the numbers for you, Will. Um, if you ask me if he's still in their best two openers, I haven't seen enough of him live to go with that, but I think I've seen enough of Alistair Cook to say that I think he probably still is in their best two openers. <laughs> so uh, why not? Uh, I've got this question a couple of times, I think, but Zayad asks, thoughts on McCullen being the leading candidate for the Red Bull role? Oh, no. So that was one question. And then I think, let me see here. Johnny then says, uh, a couple of hours later, McCullum is England coach. Thoughts? Um, I, I've got a million thoughts about this. Uh, and so it's almost hard to to work out how to, you know, uh, get them all out. Um, I feel find it really weird that he was being interview for one job and he went for another job. I find it very odd that they're picking a Red Bull coach who's not coached in Red Bull cricket before. I feel it. I, I find it very interesting that McCullum so, sees this as the bigger challenge. I know it's probably also the higher paying jobs, which might've helped as well, but that McCullum sees this as the bigger challenge because it is the bigger challenge, but I'm not sure what the way out of this job particularly is. Although if he turns England around, uh, you know, godlike status forever because, you know, wow, they've been so poor. I, I do find it interesting that we're in a situation where they've got a captain who hasn't really captained, managing director who hasn't been a managing director, and a Red Bull coach who's never coached Red Bull cricket before. It feels like a lot of people are getting stuff based on how good they were at cricket or how good they are talking to the media. And look, I think Ben Stokes will be as good a captain as Joe Root and hopefully for England fans better. I think I like Rob Key but he's never done this job before and it's a really hard job. And I like Brendan McCullum a lot. Again, there's a big difference between turning up for an IPL for a few months and doing what he's about to do. Th those are my sort of my basic takeaways. I think he obviously has an incredible cricket brain and I like the way that he thinks about things. I think it's a very odd fit. Um, th the more interesting question I think at this point is, why England don't develop head coaches. Um, it feels like everyone they get is an assistant coach um, who's very good at other things, but they don't develop head coaches, not just for them, but for any teams, right, around the world. So I find, I find that very, very interesting. Um, and I find it interesting that they've gone for a name again. So it feels like they're very name heavy at the moment. And look, a lot of this is Rob Key's backing people. He back, you know, he he has seen be good. But I do find the whole thing. I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna be really interested to see what happens because I can't imagine Brendan McCullum's going to be able to have a big impact on this team because it's not very good. Um, hopefully, I'm wrong for England fans. Uh, if you were in the England selection meeting, what data would you be telling them to look at when deciding on? Uh, this is from Chris. Sorry. Uh, 
who's going to bat in the upcoming New Zealand series? Feels like that's has to be better data points than just average and strike rate from the county season so far. Yeah, so England themselves look at weighted um, average. Uh, I wouldn't be too worried about what has happened in the county season so far. I'd be looking at the last three years probably. Uh, generally, when you're looking at players, uh, it depends on different analysts do this differently. Some analysts look at the last 12 months um, and the last three years and others look at the last two years and the last uh, four years. Um, so you could see if there's, you know, a slump or a, or, or, or a blip or a trend, um, but you can also tell, you know, uh, if something's on, going in the right direction or the wrong direction. Uh, so, you know, it's not really so much about form, but then you'd be looking at weighted average, perhaps you'd be looking at um, percentage of runs scored is a really good one in, in county seasons um, because uh, you might get a bunch of games where, you know, the top score is 250, you know, for a team, but you might have a, uh, a player who makes 80s in every innings, um, which goes back to the old Triscothic um, statistics back in the day. You could see the amount of times that Triscothic made over 50% of the runs for, for Somerset in some of those early games, but they're only making 140. So, you know, making 83 uh, on its own doesn't look that important. So they'd probably be looking at that. They'd be looking, perhaps they'd have their own runs above average metric. They'd also, if possible, would they probably would have classified different bowlers. So they would probably have averages versus different kinds of bowlers. So for for instance, going up against New, New Zealand, you want to know what your batters can do against people who are over six foot five um, or, or tall bowlers or tall release bowlers. Um, so those are all the sorts of things that you'd be looking at. Um, I don't know specifically what they, what they use at the moment, um, but I would think it would be a combination of all those sorts of things. Where do you stand on ex-captains in international sides? Cook to Root uh, Cook to Root seem to go okay, and due to their friendship, Root to Stokes probably will. But isn't it hard to imagine Stokes' successor um, having Stokes and Root in the side when he takes over? Yeah, it, I suppose it depends on the on the team. I'm trying to think, was it India or Sri Lanka that had probably had the most? They kind of had three or four, maybe, um, you know, former players and... Uh, sorry, former captains around at any one time. Um, so I certainly think that that is a, um, it's tricky, but I think it depends more on the players. Like, in, I don't think that, I think it might be more difficult to play under Stokes if he's been a captain and for a very long time than it might be to play under someone like Root or, or sorry, to, to have Root or Cook in your team, just because they're different kinds of personalities. And I think that's a very important thing to remember, uh, you know, Imagine having Graham Smith in your team. You know, I, I mean, I, I think we're seeing at the moment with MS Dhoni and CSK how there are some people who are just so natural captains, even when they're not captains, it's a problem. Um, and so I certainly think that that, is, that can be an issue. But I, I don't think, I remember the old Australian thing was you couldn't have a former captain in the team. I think that's just robbing yourself of one of the best players if they're available. Um, but there are certain personalities that I think are captain first, and I think they can sometimes cause problems. Uh, uh, Johnny says, do you think anyone will stop the IPL gradually taking over more and more of the cricket calendar? Will it inevitably outmuscle international cricket? Um, yes, I think so. I can't imagine, Johnny, anything's going to stop it. I, I mean, I, I suppose part of it just depends on the Indian public. Um, is it worth the BCCI running a six, seven, eight months tournament? Um, I would have thought yes. But it's really interesting that they were talking about having two tournaments, like one in the And I was just like, why would you do that? Why would you not just lock down six months? So I, I think it goes against the cricket way of thinking a little bit. And look, there's no 
doubt that yeah in fact i've got a podcast coming up about the ipl shortly with um ksr and you know one of the things he talks about is you know they had two incredible sort of thought leaders at the at the ipl early on we don't have those sorts of people anymore i'm not sure they're as proactive as they used to be um i i would have thought that you know if um one of the earlier leaders of the ipl was still around i think think they would have been a lot more proactive at taking more of the calendar already um and and lengthening out this tournament um i i understand the risky bit of it as well but i just think eventually they're just going to have a lot more teams and a lot more games and if it was me i would be i would push that very very fast um whereas it looks like they're going to do the opposite and they may not even have another new team for another three or four years. Um, that's not how I would do it if I, if I was going in, but you know, it's their market and, and they as I said, it's very being very conservative, but yes, if you're looking into the future, Johnny, I can't see anyone else is ever going to be able to have a league of that level um, that would ever match it. Right. Uh, I just, you know, financially, um, unless some of the other countries change fundamentally what they do, I just can't see that. Sandeep says, would it be wise for India to play Pajara in the Test match versus England considering success in the county season? Or should they sit with Bahari at number three? Look, I think Bahari has earned that spot. I've got no problem with Pajara being in the squad. Uh, it's interesting because he's never really made runs in county cricket consistently before this. In fact, I remember some people at, at Sussex reaching out and, and you know, asking him, I was like, you go through his record, he just hasn't made it work. But he's obviously Pajara. So you could see why Sussex was so excited um, I don't think county form alone should dictate uh, who goes in the Indian team. Uh, also, it was Pajara's bad form that got him out of the Indian team. The Hari, I think, deserves to at least have a good run at this position. And I also think he's a fantastic cricketer. So um, I wouldn't want to ruin a younger player for form. I'm not a big, I'm not a big truster in form. Um, but I, I think it's great for Pajara that he's made runs in England. James says, more of a comment than question. Uh Last week, there was a discussion about the technical differences in left-arm spinners. This has long been observed in baseball pitches and is colloquially known as the lefty lean. Oh, I like that. Lefty lean. I'm going, there's a video on that for me, James, which often leads to increased arm uh, pronation and uh, sidearm lateral movement. Yeah, I, I think I think that left arm is, you know, the, the way that their their physicality has to be different at the, at the crease means that there probably are those sorts of things. We just haven't really discussed them enough yet, James. I think it's certainly something that should be mentioned more and more going forward in cricket. Um, you know, it's something as, as someone who played a lot of tennis, you know, you could see it in tennis serving styles as well. Um, and we just haven't discussed it. Right. And, and, you know, left-handers do have a natural advantage in some sports and in some sports, a natural disadvantage. But, it, but in bowling, it also has a physical disadvantage while it has a tactical advantage. So it's, it's fascinating, I think, the whole subject. Andrew says, if any of the top five bats in first-class cricket in Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, India have an English bulldog, do you think that's enough to get them the job opening in the first test? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know about South Africa's batting order at the moment, Andrew, if we're being honest. Uh, Australia, yeah, I think Australia's batting still a little bit thin. Uh, New Zealand seems to be fine. India, I don't have any problem with. But yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that of those teams, England is certainly has the the worst batting. Oh, actually, sorry. Outside of South Africa, who I also don't think has particularly strong batting, it doesn't have the strength of England, even if it maybe covers some of the weaknesses a little bit better. Um, I don't think that South Africa are going through a particularly good run of batters as well at the moment. Nicholas says... Opinions on Irish domestic cricket. I love I love Wagon Wheel and I love the questions. What a beautiful question that is. Um, 
facilities and lack of teams are major problems, but uh, there's a lot of former Irish and current Irish internationals plus high-quality Southern Africans trying to gain eligibility. Yeah, I think the quality of it's okay. I mean, I've talked to, you know, obviously some of my friends work in that league. Um, it's just that it's the... It has the advantage of only having a few teams and the disadvantage of only having a few teams. So you can probably miss out on plays a little bit easier than you would like, I suppose is the best way uh, of putting that. Um, but I think it's a fairly strong competition. And considering where they started a couple of years ago, where I was looking at it going, this is not, this is not very good at all. It is certainly in a short period of time, improved a lot. And it never needs to be, you know, county cricket or, or shield cricket or the Ranji Trophy or any of those things. But what it does need to be is a high enough level that Irish players can develop there or in the county cricket game. And I think that needs to be the option going ahead. Uh, oh, I've already asked Johnny's question because that was about McCullum. Satchmo says, if you can invite any three cricket from history to your house for dinner and a conversation about cricket, who would they be? Oh, I like this. Um... I'd love uh, Aubrey Faulkner uh, would probably be one. I would love to have Leary Constantine as well. Um, and who my third? I'm thinking someone like Ashwin or Sankara. Um, I'm trying to think someone else modern. Someone that has a real view on the game and has it's going and also um, a wider view i'm trying to think if there's anyone else i'm missing but i think someone like one of them you know someone a bit more modern i think those would be the ones um aubrey faulkner obviously the first coach you know leary what an incredible mind and player he was um and then and then throw someone else i'm trying to think if there's anyone else um that's like involved in a coup wasn't there, there a sri lankan cricketer who was involved in a coup <laughs> um, i've forgotten his name he would be interesting of course as well Kennedy says, Dinesh Karthik has an average of 68 in the current IPL season. And I think he's been the best batter in the tournament so far. He has his role and he does it brilliantly. But in real terms, RCB is only getting 22.83 runs from him per game because he has eight not outs in 12 innings. At no point has he got 68 more runs in the season. When considering a player's average and limited overs cricket, uh, do you think not outs should count? It seems counterintuitive. Yeah, so a lot... Um, a lot of people in uh, in that we look at um, we look at you know uh, there are different metrics Kennedy to have a look at. I don't think there are many analysts. We look at average as a sort of a, a catch-all, but I don't think I would never look at a player's average alone um, for the benefit for the team over the course of a season. Having all those not outs obviously has a, a high benefit and not going out allows him to attack more and, you know, all those sorts of things. But if you're looking at high level analysis, I'm probably less interested in that and more interested in, uh, let's say he comes in in the 15th over. Um, and we, we assume that, and he, because he's getting not outs, we, we can assume he's going to face, uh, what 15 balls, right? And we assume that any other player in that situation is probably going to make 22 to 24 runs. And he's making, at the moment, what's he making? About two. So about 29 to 30. So we know that he has a massive impact in that case because he's not going out. So he's not being dismissed in that period. Um, and he's being able to score more. So I think most people would look more at that than anything else. And, and when you look at the guys batting seven, eight, or what is he, about six, maybe six, seven, eight. Average gives me an idea of their quality and how repeatable what they're doing is. But generally, that's not really what anyone's too worried about unless they're averaging 12 or something. 
Uh, last question for the Patreon. Oh, it's just James's question, which I accidentally copied twice. Well, we don't have to worry about that. Let's get to the chat. Who have we got to start this off? How are you? Who was first off the mark? Hey, Jared. How are you? I'm very good. Go ahead, mate. So my question is, uh, you know, there there be a couple of times you've been asked about who the second best cricketer ever is. And uh, you have mentioned Imran Khan, Gary Sobers. But I wonder why you have never mentioned uh, Sachit Tendulkar in that conversation. I mean, despite the longevity and whatever he has offered. I mean, does he not mm-hmm. make the claim for second best or even probably the best, you know, considering the period that uh, Don Bradman batted in and versus Sachin batted in? I mean, this, this is a genuine question, not like a like, like an Indian fanatic, but uh, his, his records seem to be something that deserves to be right up there in the first or second conversation. Oh, I think he's one of the best players of all time. But, I mean, he would have to average 70-odd to have a bigger impact than Imran Khan or Garfield Sobers, right? Because he would have had to have averaged massively more than other players of his era to, to be in what you're talking about is next level, right? And what was Tendulkar's average at the end? Was it mid-50s, 55, 56? Right, but he played across three eras, uh, three different, right? But Callis but but played across two of those eras. Callis averaged roughly the same and could take wickets at an average of 30 and took 200 test wickets, Right. So he bowled in two of those eras. So he was he was he was involved on both sides of the ball for four er- for for four eras, if you will. And Tenduka was involved with batting for three eras, right? Uh, I think Tenduka was fantastic, but I think there are times that Ponting and Lara were uh, you know better players than him. I think it, you go back to Tindu- uh, to Bradman, right? And, and so the the common thing for modern cricket fans to say is, oh well, look, Bradman played in this other era. He didn't have to do all these different things. Yeah, so did lots of players. They weren't averaging 100, were they? Why weren't, wasn't everyone else averaging 100 if it was so easy? And we're, we're talking about a player not from England as well, right? So if it had been an England player, it would be slightly different because they had a 100-year head start on pretty much every other cricket nation, right? Be talking about a newer cricket nation, again, one that played quite well at the start but then got dominated by England, then ended up being a better team than England. Uh that didn't, and also Bradman didn't play against New Zealand, so he didn't run his numbers up against who, the worst team in world cricket at that time, and was playing. He averaged, I think, off the top of my head, something like eighty-seven against England, and they absolutely, you know, and England destroyed other teams consistently. They were a fantastic team. Um, if if Bradman's numbers had been discounted, you would need a bunch of guys averaging sixty-five plus, and it's basically him, Sutcliffe averaged what sixty-one or something, and George Headley. Right? And George Headley sadly didn't play a lot of tests, but I think we can tell he was a fantastic player. Um, so when you're, when you're saying that he's averaging something around 40% better than the next best player, how on earth can you discount that? Right? If, if, we, if we had a bowler now averaging, what, 14 with the ball, right, for a career, are you telling me that in 100 years' time, you'd be happy with people going, oh, yeah, but that was just, you know... Uh, you know, it was back then, and it doesn't. He doesn't have to go up against laser balls like the the current bowlers do, right? As far as Tendulka goes, I, I mean, as a batter, I think he's obviously you know right up there. Uh, uh, as a jewel, I, I also um, you know, if you compare him to someone like Callis, much better one white ball player um, than Callis. Although you know, obviously Ponting and Lara were both brilliant white ball players. L- Ponting and Lara both had far smaller peaks. Uh, then, uh, then, uh, sorry, not peaks. They probably had maybe as high peaks 
but they didn't have those long, uh, long, uh, you know, longevity. They weren't as good for as long as Tendulkar was. So I think, you know, if you like that, then certainly um, there's no, no doubt that he goes above those players. Currently, Steve Smith has a higher batting average in test cricket than Tendulkar, though, right? Uh, you know, we have seen other players come in of recent times and do that. And Tendulkar might still end up with a higher batting average than Smith because we don't know how long he's going to play and, and he's on a downward spiral. Um, uh, so, you know, with all that in mind, we could still say that Tendulkar is one of the greatest players of all time. But is he, was he of, did he have more impact on a cricket game than Sobers or Callis or Imran Khan? I don't think so, mate. I just don't think, I don't think that's possible. And he certainly didn't have more of an impact than Bradman. Because how on earth can you have more of an impact than Bradman when they both basically played for 20 years, except one of them missed out because of World War II. Um, they were, I think Bradman was probably better at the end of his career than Tendulkar, um, which is probably remarkable considering he had to come back from the war. Uh, not that he went to war, but the war break. Um, uh, uh, the game was changed more by Bradman than it was for Tendulkar. Uh, now that's not Tendulkar's fault because he was still fantastic, but I don't think bowlers specifically started cha changing the way they bowled just because of him in the way that obviously had to happen for Bradman. Um, uh, you know, Bradman had an impact on teams in that you had, you went into a game knowing that you had essentially someone who could, who, who was going to make a hundred, what it was it every three or four innings. I don't think we've ever had anyone else who will ever do that before and we certainly won't ever have anyone else who'll be able to do that again you cannot discount what Bradman did and then the other side of it is what we're talking about with Imran Khan and Garfield Sobers and Callis de definitely deserves to be in, in in that conversation as well the ability to impact the game on both sides of the ball um and have the always be a threat for your team is a bit big difference to what Bradman or Tendulkar could do or any great batter can do right um and in Sobers case um, he was a frontline bowler and a frontline batter. And the back half of Imran Khan's career, he was a frontline bowler and a frontline batter. And Callis was probably always a fifth bowler, but a very important bowler, especially in those conditions. Also, the other thing that's worth remembering about Callis specifically is he averaged an obscene amount in probably the place that it was, I would argue, was probably the hardest place to score runs in world cricket. So I think all those things need to be factored in, as does the fact that Tendulkar played from late 80s to, you know, um, uh, was it 2010, was it? Yeah, 20, early 2010. I mean, that is that on its own is a remarkable career, especially because as professionalism came in, it looked like we were getting less of that. When you look at the history of cricket, that is not as remarkable as you would think. We've had quite, you know, I'm um, Graham Gooch's career is, uh, you know, and Alan Border's career, um, two incredibly long careers uh, at the sort of the end of uh, the amateur era. And then you had guys like Wilfred Rhodes who played for 4,000 four, 4, years. Um, so we certainly had those sorts of things in cricket before. But with, with Tendulka, there's absolutely no doubt. But if you're looking at impact on the game uh, and you're looking at everything else, I think there's a reason why everyone's desperate to get all-rounders in the side, right? And you can cover, you can cover Tendulka with a, two very good batters from two different eras. I don't think you can cover Imran Khan, uh, you know, or, or Garfield Sobers or, or Callis um, uh, because they just, they, those players don't come up. Those players allow you to essentially go into a team with 11, with 12 players, right? That's a huge advantage. And if you look at Bradman, that's what Bradman did as well. He essentially allowed you to go in with two batters in one position. Um, and, and if you want to see the impact of what that can be in, in short term, have a look at someone like... Um, you know, uh, what Butler did at the start of the IPL season or, you know, um, 
you know, a player having an absolutely great period, uh, you know, over a year or, or two. So what Root did for England, sometimes you can almost cover two plays in, in one position. Now think about the fact that Imran Khan did that for a decade. Garfield Sobers did it for his whole career. Callis did it for, what, 15, 16 years. Um, and and Bradman did that for, uh, you know, the best part of 20 years, give, give or take a war or two. Um, those players are just so rare. They just don't come along, mate. We, we just don't have players like that. Tendulkar is rare in a different way in that you have a player. Uh, I think Tendulkar's main reason for being a legend at this point, other than the fact he was just a great batter, is the fact that, he had the ability to be a top-level batter for such a long time. So generally what happens is you come in when you're young and you have a look at someone like Ponting when he was young. He was obviously a talented player, but was a bit up and down. And then you have the end of Ponting's career. He's almost a replacement-level player at that point. You know, he talks about it in his book. I think even if you look at the end of Sachin's career, and he probably went on a bit too long as well, he was still a really, really top-level player towards the end of, uh, of his time until maybe he went on a little bit too long. You don't really get players who do that. You generally get players who have, uh, you know, that five or six years in the middle and that carries them on for a little bit. So to to have a player, you know, Ponting's career is probably far more like normal, what a normal great player would do, although his peak was way higher than most people's peak. But uh, I think in Tendulkar's thing, the ability to do that for longer is why I, I would be more, if, if someone wanted to say to me that Lara and Ponting were better bats than Tendulkar, I think that's fair. But the impact that Tendulkar had over a longer period of time is way better than what Lara or, or Ponting were able to do just because their peaks were relatively um, small, um, you know, a, a short period of time. And the rest of the time, they were, you know, they were just normal struggling batters as, as normal players do. And, and I think that's where Tendulkar's real um, talent is that you, for the majority of his career, he was a well above average player. And for a long part of that, he was just a great player. You don't get those sorts of players very much, which is why he sanctioned Tendulka. And, you know, um, you, you could put it this way. For someone like Tendulka, it, it, it would have been quite easy for him to be burnt out by the time he was 32 and retire. It also would have been quite easy for him between the age of 32 and 38 to average 35 and still keep getting picked, right? And that that... You know, the fact that he still had that drive and still had the ability to do that, that's that next level of batting talent where you could say that Barry Richards or Viv Richards or, you know, other players were better on their day, but the ability to maintain that high level for such a long time, I would say that puts Tendulka in the Bradman and Jack Hobbs class, uh, which is, you know, probably another level uh, of, of, of batting. Um, of, of the ability to almost do it from start to finish in a career, um, which I think is, you know, very, very hard to do. Um, it, and I, I don't think we'll, we'll see many players ever be able to do that. I mean, the perfect example right at the moment is Kane Williamson's elbow, Steve Smith and Virat Kohli's form drop, um, and, and Joe Root struggling to convert. These are all great players, you know, not greats for their country, but all-time great players. And they've all struggled, struggled with those sorts of things. Um, and I think um, that tells you, again, what a ridiculous player that Tachin Tendulka was. But when you're talking about players having the biggest impact on cricket teams, you know, there, there's always going to be a limitation that, a, that uh, Glenn McGrath or Sachin Tendulka can have compared to Kellis or um, Imran Khan or Garfield Sobers. Thanks, Jared. I just wanted to know where he stood in that conversation. So thank you for that perspective.
Yeah, no worries. I mean, when we talk about those sorts of plays, I think it's just really, rem- it's worth remembering. They're all great. <laughs> and and I think sometimes we get a bit fascinated with tooth. But I, I did, uh, the piece the other day, uh, I talked about MS Doney and Michael Bevan. And there are all these people going, how can you compare, compare Bevan to Doney? That wasn't even what the video was about, right? The video was about that Doni has a really similar method to Bevan and that Bevan has explained the method. And so it's worth looking at it through Bevan's eyes a little bit. Um, Bevan was fantastic. If you go back and have a look at his numbers compared to everyone, people weren't averaging over 50 in one day cricket. He could, you could not get him out. And because of that, it meant that Australia was kept in games that they shouldn't be in uh, because they collapsed in the first innings and he managed to get them to a decent total or he just chased totals that no one else could could stick around in. And there were other fantastic players that Australia had in that era, like Andrew Simons comes on later and obviously Ricky Ponting is, you know, an absolutely almost a forgotten um, great player of one-day cricket. But but people want to compare everyone to other people. And it's like, no, that person was fantastic, but they do this. And, um, you know, and Sachin Tendulkar and uh, Jack Hobbs, as fantastic as they were, probably just can't have the same kind of impact that that Callis and Sobers and, and Imran Khan could have just because of the kinds of players they were. Um, and that's why all-rounders, you know, um, are pushed into cricket teams generally when they're not very good. Um, uh, and, uh, and <laughs> you know, because everyone's looking for that next player that can do that. Artish, you there? Yeah, hi. Hey, mate. My question is about conflict of interest and corruption in great administration. It started coming to me because of like Saurav Gamgali's uh, appearing in many fantasy sports app advertising. <laughs> I think it started up when uh, a few years ago, he, when Dream 11 really became big, he was one of the first people. Uh, I think that was pushing it. And at the time, he was also in the BCC and a lot of course, uh, people were raising eyebrows. Anyway, so is the situation as bad across all cricketing both or is this especially bad in India? And what do you think can be like done better so that this happens less? Because it's it's like really needs a bad taste in your mouth because like nobody after a point nobody even bats an eye and nobody even cares that there's just so much confidence just going up. So it's really interesting. I can't remember when I wrote this piece, but a very, very long time ago I wrote a piece about conflict of interest in cricket on Crick Info. And, uh, sorry, can I just get you to mute your microphone? Yeah. Cheers. Um, just background noise there. Uh, yeah, I wrote this piece and it is still a piece that haunts me because so many people are still upset that I wrote that piece and it's got to be more than a decade old now. It was probably one of my first, uh, more serious pieces that I ever wrote for Crick Info. And the reason I wrote it is because people in cricket didn't even understand what conflict of interest. When I was bringing it up, they were looking at me baffled and I'd be like, you can't be a player agent and commentate on a game. It doesn't make any sense. And, uh, you know, I, I remember with, with Crick Info, when I said, I'm going to become an analyst, they were like, well, you're going to have to stop working for us. And I went, of course. And they were like, oh, we thought you'd want to keep working. That's because other people had done that. Um, and I probably flirted with it as well because I was kind of going between being a journalist and an analyst a lot of times. And even that is icky. Fortunately, I had to pay my bills um, and I, I didn't particularly like doing it. I, I wanted... I wanted all my pieces on Crick Info to say all the teams I'd work for, but Crick Info thought it was a bit messy at the end, uh, you know, in my in in my um in my uh, information line at the end. Um, but you know, it's so it's certainly not it's certainly not. I am you know Michael Vaughan uh, is commentating on BBC and he is what a, was he a managing director or something in an agency and he was talking up players and he was saying that had nothing to do with his opinion. Um, you had. Um, you had Tony Gregg on air talking about what a wonderful country um, Sri Lanka is and not 
uh, and not saying that it's a paid ad. Um, you have administrators and coaches working for all different places. Um, you have analysts working for betting companies and also working for cricket teams. And I don't, the thing is, I don't blame any of these people because cricket just allows it. So I think originally, and that was what upset people in my original piece was that it, it, it shouldn't, you shouldn't need to be done. Part of the problem is that people aren't paid correctly in cricket and most of those jobs are not full time. And a lot of them are casual and disappear and, uh, you know, the coaching jobs, you're not sure all these sorts of things. Um, but no, I don't think it, it's certainly not an Indian problem. Um, I think it's a problem right across the board. I think it's, uh, I think it's the way that cricket has grown because it was amateur. Uh, when you could get your money any way you could, you got your money any way you could, but it's no longer that game anymore. And I think certainly if you're in administration, uh, you shouldn't be getting, there shouldn't be side jobs. Um, and, uh, be, just because of the, you know, the, the side of that, um, it's harder for the people who don't have full-time jobs. I, I think there has to be some kind of leeway for that, or you have to offer them a full-time job. So that's not a, a problem with them. Uh, but for the people, but, but for the people who do have full-time jobs, who are still taking money on the side, it's just not a good look. I don't think it makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, it bothers sponsors. You know, the ones who aren't involved in it, it, it really, it, it's a really complicated era and it puts you in a compromised position that you shouldn't be in. And I certainly know of bad stories because of this. Um, and uh, the Ganguly ones, you know, it's remarkable, isn't it? You know, it, I think I, you might remember better, Artish, but he was at Dream 11. Did he go to My 11 Circle after that? But Dream 11 was still the IPL sponsor, but he was working for the BCCI. I mean, if you're, if, if think about this, if you're Dream 11, what, you must be thinking to yourself, what? Um, and if you're a potential sponsor, you'd be thinking the same thing. Yeah, and, and it it's certainly not just um, an Indian cricket thing. I think this is a cricket thing. And I think it's something to do with the Cricket still has this very amateur setup. So there are very few commentators in the world whose job is to commentate. And th most of the coaching international coaches in the world kind of are specialist coaches and part-time coaches that come and go, which means that everyone needs to know that they've got permanent income coming in, which means you're naturally compromised. Um, so yeah, I, I don't think it's a good situation to be in. I, I think you, you're right. Um, but it's certainly not an Indian thing. No. Thanks. No worries. Thanks for your question, mate. Did I said, how high a ceiling does cricket have as a world sport? I mean, it's not ever going to be football, is it? I think it's going to run into the problems that Americans seem to make things cooler in other places. And I it's obviously never going to be a top five sport in America, which is fine. It doesn't have to be, of course, but I can't imagine it's going to be. But I, I do truly believe that there's no reason why Argentina, Japan, Brazil, random countries around the world couldn't get very obsessed with cricket. We know it's an obsessive sport. Uh, we know once it gets into your national culture, um, it's really interesting. I think it comes with a sort of charm, even if I don't always like the cucumber sandwiches and the whites uh, and the tea. Um, I, I think it comes with a certain charm that allows it to to sometimes you know edge its way into certain societies. I think it's such a fascinating sport. Uh, you know, having countries like you know Namibia and Afghanistan and Thailand play it. You know, if they and Nepal, if they all get big. 
that's a really interesting one, uh, you know, and in how it grows in other places. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it, you can make a fair argument at the moment that it's the second or third biggest sport in the world, right? It, depending on how you frame the question. Um, it's probably already huge and it's never going to get past football, I wouldn't think. I don't think it should get past football. It's a different kind of sport. Um, but it's obviously an absolutely fantastic uh, – I think it's a fantastic sport for streaming platforms and for social media in the way that it works. And I think that you can have, you know, a whole day's conversation. I mean, you, you know, you look at the Boxing Day tests is, is probably one of the better examples of that. It's like 24-hour cricket days, right? How many sports get that? You know, there's a lot of natural advantages to cricket that we haven't even tapped into yet. So I think it certainly has a very high ceiling. Um, but it, it, it honestly, it depends on how you frame the question. Uh, if you're talking about money, it's probably never going to make as much money as some of the other sports. Um, if you're talking about eyeballs, it may be already the second biggest sport in the world. Um, if you're talking about popularity in the most amount of countries, maybe it never even cracks into the top 10. Um, but I do think that as people start to learn about it, I, I've had some, a lot of conversations with Americans about cricket recently. And, you know, the, the, the recurring theme there is they get into cricket in such weird ways. And I don't think we've, we don't even, I, I've had so many fights with cricket boards over this board. They don't understand what is going to get someone to like the sport. The best way to do that is more social media, is more YouTube, is more cricket tournaments around the world. And I think as that happens, it will naturally progress to a lot of countries. And we already know that over 100 countries have, you know, top level sort of uh, in, you know, um, organized cricket. Um, I think that will only grow. Rajiv, you there or are you still struggling? Looks like you're still struggling. I think he might have put something up in the chat as well. Oh, uh, so he's a data analyst. Uh, and he wants to work in cricket in the next couple of years. Um, all right. Uh, and he's asking, so my, my data, I don't collect it myself, Rajiv. So my data is collected by uh, people in, in, in uh, organizations and people out in the world. So Andrew Sampson, uh, obviously still uh, use some Crick Info data occasionally when I'm working with them. Um, and you know, I've got some other things, uh, uh, going a lot of people use, I think they're called spider bots. I should know more about this. Sorry, Rajiv. Um, and they just go to Crick Info or Crick Buzz and just pull everything down and, and, and do it that way. Um, you know, there's a lot of different partnerships and groups you can do. If you can, you know, I think Crick, Cricket, Crick Buzz, Crick Viz are very good at, if they see someone who's quite talented at, you know, saying we've got all this data, do you want to come in and, and work with it? Um, you know, uh, and there's more and more organizations like that out in the world. And, you know, uh, I, th I think from, from that perspective, you know, uh, th there's absolutely no doubt that you can, um, uh, that you can form partnerships. There'll be more and more companies like that. There's a lot of Indian companies too, that they take, instead of using Hawkeye, they take a lot of manual data down, but they still have a lot of information. So there are a lot of places to do partnerships, but, you know, Crick Sheets is obviously the best place to start for most people. Crick Sheets has uh, all the ball by ball data information over the last, what, 12, 15 years, probably. Uh, all the major uh, stuff, certainly all the stuff that you can get on Crick Info, maybe on Crick Buzz as well. And you start from there. And then, you know, I, I, what I've always said is one of the most important things is I think most people now, if they're desperate enough to get this information, they'll be able to work out how to do it, especially if they can code. The most important thing though is what are you learning? What sort of knowledge can you impart um, and how are you sharing? 
Um, so those are the things you've got to remember that if you're in a business meeting, you'll be showing maybe a bunch of stuff to a bunch of people who are used to looking at, you know, different kinds of uh, data visualizations. If you get a job at a low level cricket club uh, or franchise, they might not be used to that. How do you get it across? What's the best way to get information across? How do you work with the team? How do you work with the coach? How do you work with the general manager or the owner or the, the cricket board or whatever that may be? Those are the sorts of things that I think people should be thinking about just as much as how to get the data. Um, and then the, I suppose the next most important one is, especially as you're saying you want to work in, in the, this field in the next three to four years, the next most important thing for me is like matchups are dead. Like anyone can do matchups. You can go online and do matchups now. Um, and I've kind of cringed at the whole matchup thing the whole time. I don't think, I don't think we always talk about it the right way. But what can you bring? What's the next thing? You know, what should, what can you focus on, or what can you find that someone else can't do? Um, and I always say, if you want to work for a cricket team, what can you tell them that they don't already know is a really good way of starting. Oh, Tisha's back. Hey, mate. Another question. Hi. Yeah. So my question is about DRS. Yesterday we saw. Uh, how Mitch Marsh won DG the game, but he was out visiting second over. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know that, like in cricket, the review system works very different than than football uh, VR because it has been built errors in it. But especially for clear and obvious errors like that, where it's difficult for the teams to also know whether or not to review it because they're so close to the bat. Can there be a way in which, if you change the laws or something, that the like the review umpire can do what the foot, uh, referee in football does. We are referee and not have the onus on teams to refer it up and then make the decision. Okay, so yes and no is my answer here. How old are you? Uh, 23. Okay, so you wouldn't have watched much of the ICL, the Indian Cricket League? Uh, no, no, no. In that league, they had an umpire, a third umpire, look at every single ball and basically do what you're saying, right? Which is have a look. Oh, that looks a bit close. I just want to have a quick look at that um, um, again. The problem is it's not so bad with fast bowlers, but now imagine that's a spinner bowling. Imagine David Hussey is bowling. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Krunal Pandya, um, uh, Keda Yadav, you know, these sorts of guys who like come in off a couple of steps and just wang it in as quickly as they can, ball after ball after ball, right? By the time the replay is shown, you almost have to pause the bowler for every ball. And then if there is something close, there's actually far more close incidents in any cricket game than you probably thinking are close, right? That, that people have to have a look at. And so it means that we'd have to have a lot more stops. And that original third umpire thing that they came up with the ICL, I actually think it was a really good idea, but also I'm not sure if it works. Just because our game already has enough breaks in it, it would actually, it makes the game longer and also makes the game just a little bit more awkward, if that makes sense. So we're going to have players standing out on the field doing nothing more often for nothing, right? So that one yesterday, when I saw it in real time, I thought, oh, they'll review this, and they didn't. But I didn't think, oh, we definitely have to have a look at this. My first thought wasn't that, right? I think for that particular ball, there's maybe enough time to have a look at it. But think about what that third umpire has to look at in the time that Trent Bolt has to walk back to his mark, which is about... 25 to 40 seconds, depending on the bowl, right? He's got to get the right angle. He's got to get the right, he's got to use the right technology. And he's, in some cases, he's got to wait for things to process. So Hawkeye isn't instantaneous all the time to be able to get all that back. So 
if that happens 10 to 15 times a game, are you happy for 10 to 15 stops in play to be able to get the decisions more right? No, I don't think that'll be good, yeah. Right. And so, no, I mean, you, might, you might not have said that. You might have said, yeah, actually, I am. That's the game we're playing at the moment, mate. What the game we're playing at the moment is we're kind of halfway between those two worlds, right? The best way to explain it is DRS only exists because TVs, uh, TV cameras can show that umpires make mistakes, right? So it just got to a point where it was so ridiculous that after every decision, Channel 9 would show that that mistake was wrong. And then Channel 4 would show that. And then eventually Supersport would show that, right? And you got to a point where it's like, well, bloody hell, everyone. Um, we can't keep doing this because it's making our game look stupid. What we're at is this middle ground, right? Of we want to keep the game moving, but we also don't, we want to give, we want to make it look like we're still getting the decisions more correct. I would say the umpiring, just because of DRS, uh, you know, the, um, especially the Hawkeye part of it, are just much better now than they ever used to be. Um, and also a lot of those very, very bad mistakes are, uh, are fixed. And also a lot of the closer ones, we're probably getting more right. So umpiring is actually being fixed by Hawkeye existing. And if, if you don't believe me, go and have a look at some of Roe Belinda's old footage, as I always say. Horrendous umpiring. It, br br <laughs> Bruce Reed getting LBWs when he's pitching the ball a foot outside leg stump and it's hit someone on the hip over and over again. So certainly umpiring has been fixed around the world, but we're still going to have mistakes. So really, I suppose what we're asking then is that question that I just asked of you. Are we happy to get slightly closer to the best decisions possible? knowing that we're not going to get all of them right or do we want all of them right and i think that what cricket has managed to do is say no we don't want all of them right what we really want is more of them right um the only thing i would add to all that is the um is that i don't know if you watched any of the hundred they were just so much quicker with all with how they did everything i don't know what the technology differences were that the hundred used that everyone else has been using in cricket but if we can do it quicker, maybe we can get towards um, uh, doing it. But I still don't know how you do it when, um, you know, I, I don't know if Dave, does David Hussey have the quickest overs? Um, there's another bowler as well. There's another spinner, isn't there, um, that I think has the, the quickest over. Judeja's up there. I don't think he has the quickest. I think there's a West Indian bowler that, uh, that might have, uh, another West Indian spinner that might have had it as well. But any, any of those finger spinners, right, they're getting through their overs in like, what? anywhere between 50 and a minute and a half if they can get away with it, right? How on earth do you, if you if they have two times where the ball hits the pad, um, you're adding an extra minute, minute and a half to that over, right? Um, it's just, it's, it's hard, I suppose, is the best way of doing it. So we have an imperfect system, but honestly, we'll never get 100% correct decisions anyway because we'll never be able to get the, we're talking about technology for people who are standing 100 meters away from the cameras, right? Or 60 meters away from the cameras. It's never going to be perfect uh, because of foreshortening, because of the kind of technologies we use. I think we kind of have to live with that at a certain point. Just, it depends on how we want to live with it. All right. Uh, also, yeah. like, again, from yesterday's games, can we please get rid of bills? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the bales is interesting. So I don't, I don't know if you had a look. I did a video recently about, like, if you were designing cricket today, you wouldn't need bales, right? Like, we, we only had bales because uh, that was the best way of telling if, if, if something had happened. Um, otherwise, you know, anyone who's ever played cricket in a, in a backyard or in a street with, like, a, a bin as the stumps, you know, if the ball nicks the stumps, you then spend 20 minutes arguing with the batter between the batter and the bowler whether it actually hit the stump, uh, nicked the stumps or not, right? Or if you've got a chalk outline that it hit the inside of the chalk outline or the outside of the chalk outline, all that sort of stuff that you have arguments with. So bales make perfect sense in that world. 
They don't really make sense in professional cricket at all. I kind of like the randomness of bales as well um, because there's so many weird things about cricket that I think are nice that you wouldn't design today. But at the same time, it's like, uh, you know, if you hit the stumps, you hit the stumps. Um, I suppose that that goes to a certain point, though, that we then have to have a thing in the stumps that actually tells you um, uh, that you've hit the stumps hard enough that the bales would have come off, right? Which is also very tricky. But the other interesting thing is that for a bold, I kind of get the not having bales. From a run-out perspective, I kind of like the idea of bales because it puts an extra bit of skill in running someone out, whether you're a wicketkeeper or, or a fielder or a bowler up at the stumps, because you have to not knock the bales off right um if you compare that to being a base you know being on a, on a baseball diamond all i have to do is make sure my foot is on the diamond it's kind of a fairly easy skill i would have thought whereas you have to make sure you're near the stumps you're taking the ball and you're not taking the bales off accidentally beforehand i kind of like the extra layer of skill that is required there but again if you are designing the sport from today you probably wouldn't have bales but i like them um but but i'm i'm i completely I don't think I have a great argument against Bales other than the fact that if we did do that, we would have two different levels of cricket, right? Because club cricket would be completely different. And so uh, you could already argue that we have that because of DRS and, and third umpires and, and, and everything else. But uh, it does change the game a little bit more at that point. But um, I, I'm, I'm okay with Bales. I like Bales for runouts and, um, and, and stumpings and those sorts of things. Uh, if they took, if they took Bales away for bowls, you know, I don't think I'd have a solid argument against it other than the fact I like bales. All right, thanks. No worries. Cheers. All right. Well, it looks like I've exhausted everyone in the chat and I'm going to head back down to local ground and watch a bit of Kent versus Surrey. So thank you to everyone for coming on the chat, especially to the Patreon people um, who obviously get to um, do that early on. And as I said before, if you've enjoyed this podcast and you enjoy what we do here, we're trying to do it on a much larger scale over at 99.94. So, you know, follow us on Twitter or on Instagram or just go to the website 9994dm.com and sign up over there. But thank you to everyone who's listening today. Another great chat. And I'll talk to you all next time. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on the 99.94 Network. For more information about us, go to 9994dm.com and you can also sign up for our beta launch. And if you have listened this long, you probably like what we do. And that is great. So please rush over and support us on Patreon, which has many extra advantages the podcast doesn't have, like asking earlier questions. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is our sound maestro. Makundra Bandredi presses record on the videos and then falls asleep. Orajasi Sampati makes the podcast into video gold. And Shubanka Bhattacharya makes pretty, pretty graphics.